Hello, and welcome to Russia in Context, a series of New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy Contours podcast. This is your host, Jeff Hahn. Three decades ago, the Cold War ended with the red flag being lowered over the Kremlin. The USSR was dead and Russia was reborn, but history did not end. And over the last three decades, Russia has once again become a persistent challenger to U.S. global leadership. How this is happening and why it is happening is what we seek to answer on our new sub-series of the Contours podcast, Russia in Context. I'm your host, Jeff Hahn, and I'm joined today by two exciting guests, Nick Triquette, a senior mining and metals analyst from S&P Global Community Insights and author of the upcoming book, Empire of Austerity, Russia and the Breaking of Eurasia, which covers the evolution of the Russian political economy since the 1990s, focusing on how the management of macroeconomic stability has intersected with, exacerbated, and in some cases helped to drive Russia's foreign policy and the steady drift towards a more aggressive and direct coercion at home since the 2000s. With experience working in various commodities consulting and analyst roles, doing policy research and political risk, he has written for a variety of outlets, including Riddle, The Diplomat, Oil Price, FPRI, Freedom House, and runs his own daily newsletter on Russia and Eurasia, their political economy and intersections with foreign policy and the rapidly evolving energy sector. Nick holds an MA in Regional Studies from European University in St. Petersburg and a Master's of Science in International Political Economy from the London School of Economics. Our other guest is Yakov Fagan, Associate Director at the Bergen Institute, working on economic policy. He holds a PhD in economic history from the University of Pennsylvania. His book, Building a Ruin, the Cold War Politics of Soviet Economic Reforms, will be released with HUP in June 2024. Thank you both for joining me today. So the Russian economy, a lot of complexity, a lot of opinions but you two gentlemen are probably some of the best experts on getting to the actual nitty-gritty of what's going on. So let's start with the historical context. And Yakov, I want to start with you. Can you explain to us why Russia underwent such a dramatic but poorly understood economic transition in the 1990s, away from the Soviet planned economy and towards the shock therapy, which begot the oligarchy, and some people say led directly to the rise of Vladimir Putin? Well, I think there are, the way you have to understand this process is you have to go to the late Soviet period and really the fact that the Soviet economy is incredibly over leveraged. It's got a huge amount of capital stock, but it's got a capital stock that's both really inefficient and not really meeting the needs of the consumption side of the economy. It's not quote unquote profitable. It's not generating any enough goods to meet final consumption. Because of that, you know, from almost, if you think about it as a balance sheet, it has to be written down, right? You have to kind of lower the value of these massive capital assets. And that's the process that I think the 1990s is about, is how do you write this down? And writing down the value of an asset is very, very politically fraught. And it's very difficult because you're also dealing with a situation in which, you know, you don't have much surplus. You don't have a labor surplus. You're not really producing stuff for the global market. Uh, there's this really famous kind of attempt to like export Soviet style steel. It doesn't really work that well because it's not used. The, the grades aren't used in a lot of these processes and, you know, getting foreign capital in to upgrade your equipment isn't really 
happening because of the political difficulties and just because again lowering your exchange rate is just very difficult because you're again falling into inflationary tendencies that way which are already pretty bad so you're in a rock and a hard place and you know there is this very famous kind of way of thinking about the problem of like oh china did something right so we did something wrong and i think that's not the correct way to think about it i think the right way and i think an illuminating way is to say that you know the soviet union's capital structure it was a lot healthier in the 50s and 60s and if you were going to reform that's when it would be more painless but you all took two decades to lock this in and now it really is a painful process one way or another the other thing is you know shock therapy itself was a not necessarily very linear you still had a lot of conflict within as Jeff, you actually know from your work, right, within political blocks as to whether to keep supporting certain industrial blocks with subsidies from either directly or from the central bank or not. And that these are really fraught processes and they really don't, I think, resolve until the mid 90s or really to 1998, where you kind of have some kind of elite consensus about how to deal with this very, very old capital stock and how to redistribute it and write out its value. Thank you, Yakov. And Nick, that's where your work touches on this emerging elite consensus that you call the empire of austerity. Can you um, pick up the thread there and tell us how the Russian economy evolved from the 1990s into the 2014 invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent international sanctions? Yeah, and thanks, Jeff, for having me. Um, I think building on what Yakov was talking about, I tend to think of the problem of inflation in the Russian context. It applies in other contexts somewhat universally, but in, in the Russian context, there's a question of you know competition over resources, right? And whether it's access to credit, whether it's access to labor, physical plants, et cetera. And really throughout the 1990s, there wasn't really any mechanism that was uh, functioning to some extent. Obviously there were limits aside from macroeconomic institutions that adopted what would amount to a kind of like austerity program to some extent. I think part of what Yakov was touching on, I think is also important to understand about the 1990s was that the ruble was overvalued at a fixed exchange rate that was fairly strong. And actually that had a ruinous consequence for um, a lot of industries that simply couldn't compete with imports. So part of the reason why the default 1998 kind of creates this kind of elite consensus is, is because you know, industry wants to be able to compete to some extent and actually function. Everybody is kind of fed up with dysfunction and non-payments for, um, you know, between businesses, non-payments of taxes, et cetera. And in a weird way, the banking sector was actually easier to clean up than so many expected because there were so many non-monetary transactions already taking place from banks that writing them off was a bit simpler. So to some extent, it, it was kind of like a massive stroke of luck. You had you had the kind of the right, the right circumstances for every every major elite group to have a reason to be invested in effectively adopting what I would call kind of a default austerity framework for macroeconomic stabilization. It, you know, you have to make sure that you you always rein in spending. Greater spending is inflationary. Debt is inflationary. Um, Russia had to get out from underneath this large pile of external obligations it held, and they basically had to, you know had to find a way to to monetize all this activity that demonetized over the course of the 1990s. For a variety of reasons, and you know, by about 1999, 2000, after about a year on for the default, you know, you you see very very clear evidence of a fairly strong bounce back in industrial activity. You know, businesses now actually have a reason to use rubles because they 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 better reflect the, the actual like value of goods on the ground. And by 2001, 2002, the kind of concern was that, and this is this is raised by Gaidar and other um, more liberal economists, is that essentially this kind of boom of growth that happens after the default. Was coming to an end because it was largely catch-up growth. It was it was kind of like an overhang from the 1990s, and that eventually that you you have to institute institutional reform. You'd have to you know change what you were doing. 
Russia got a bit lucky in the sense that starting in 2003, oil prices steadily climbed. They didn't explode when Iraq was invaded, but they did actually steadily climb until they obviously shot up massively in 2007, 2008. And that windfall, which was basically captured through tax reforms, the oil sector, and a, and a variety of other institutional quasi-reforms, I would say, because I think, honestly, the tax reforms often get bandied about as evidence of this really successful kind of quasi-neoliberal reform effort. But in reality, a lot of it was enforcement. And, and if people weren't paying taxes anyway, you, you weren't like massively changing reality for a lot of people in, in practice. But anyway, this oil windfall allows the state to stabilize its finances, but it kind of reintroduces the same problem, which is that you know, currencies tend to appreciate dramatically when you have a, a huge uptick in the monetary value of, of your main export, in this case, the oil and gas. And so, you know, Russia has to find a way to simultaneously prevent its currency from overvaluing and leading to the kind of industrial dysfunction you saw in the 1990s again in crowding out of domestic industries with imports while, you know, also you know, not really spending too much money because they're terrified that any spending will be inflationary. And inflation is already running hot as it is because growth is relatively fast. Wages are rising fairly quickly. And on top of that, you have these kind of ad hoc populist measures to increasingly do a lot more money to, to pensioners or to increase public salaries, et cetera, ahead of elections, things like that. So the 2000s is an interesting time because even though they did a fairly good job in terms of the kind of fiscal response, um, fiscal, not responsibility, fiscal stabilization and stabilization of the economy, they really didn't do a lot structurally about underlying problems, including the dependence on these um, resource exports and exporting sectors, not only to generate export earnings and tax receipts, but also to generate demand for domestic industries. Because, you know, lots of the steel sector, to use the example Yaka was talking about, it was underwritten by, you know, demand for piping, et cetera, domestically. You know, domestic rolling stock often relies on these exporters, including you know, coal miners, to kind of sustain their orders, et cetera. And they didn't really, frankly, spend enough money to unlock a lot of bottlenecks, including, you know, significantly expanding physical infrastructures like rail, et cetera, to new markets, primarily in the East significantly increasing their investments into research and education, you know, it, like these things didn't really take place. And what's also even more strange about it is that when you actually look in like GDP terms and kind of net national income terms, the debt burden that they actually had by 2003, it wasn't that burdensome to be frank. It wasn't, you know, a massive problem that couldn't be dealt with. Obviously, they were terrified of an oil market downturn. But part of the reason why the 2000s was this kind of strange time in Russian economic policymaking was that none of them expected the upturn that happened. The, the actual tax code was not designed for oil prices to hit $100 a barrel. And, it, and weirdly enough, in 2008, when you know oil prices hit their record highs of over $140 a barrel mid-year, oil production actually declined because the effective tax rate on a lot of projects was above 100%. And it had, you had to kind of find these weird fixes to, to ease that. So by and large, you, you essentially had a system that coalesced that, you know, everyone had buy-in because it provided stability and it allowed the state to get out from under its external obligations, which it saw as a security risk and, and a political problem. But it it did not lead to the increase of, of investment into productive kind of uses that it really needed to figure out. Thank you, Nick. Yakov, uh, you had something to add? Yeah, I really, Nick, I think that's a perfect summary of where we are. Um, and as you were speaking, you know, I just wanted to pull back and say, like, look, uh, how difficult a situation you find yourself as Russia as an economy, right? In the 2000s, because let's be frank here, right? Most, even with the oil boom, most of Russian GDP and most of gro growth is actually coming from the consumer sector, right? Which is somewhat benefiting from the oil boom, but it's also because Russian consumers have built up quite a bit of savings and suddenly those savings are spendable and the ruble is kind of stabilized and appreciating. And it actually looks like a fairly, you know, not even middle income, but, you know, like fairly high income economy in some regards. 
but it's not really competitive at anything, right? Other than oil, it doesn't have a large population surplus. If anything, it's going the other way, right? It looks a lot like a European country in those population profiles. It's technology R&D sector isn't really there and it's not being invested in. Um, that's probably a missed opportunity with IT and such, but even then that's kind of hard to compete with. And you've got a Chinese boom crowding out your traditional industries, which are much less green field in the Chinese industries. So what do you do? It's a very hard situation to work in. And that kind of context is really important to think through as you try to understand what the Russian government's trying to do in the thing. Yeah, Nick? Yeah, so no, I, I completely agree with that. I was kind of offering a, I think, probably overly simplified version. I think that it's important to also flag that the people who engineered the kind of macro stability framework, including, you know, like guys like Alexei Kudrin, I mean, their default policy preferences were largely to give money to the public that actually support consumption. So yeah, you're, you're right that the oil boom is really a consumption boom that is financed by, by like this windfall that's redistributed. And it's, it's a really good point about China's manufacturing boom really hammering away at kind of the, the possibility of competing in terms of exporting sectors. I think where it gets interesting is that by 2006, 2007, you essentially have this consensus building that the economy is overheating, and that's largely down to physical constraints. Like in infrastructure is the most common one cited by most ministers, as well as just like, you know, lobbyists, business leaders, et cetera. But there really wasn't like a coherent effort to break that gridlock through like public spending, right, or public investment. And I think it's also important, like the institutional side is important as well, because Part of the reason why inflation stays higher throughout the 2000s is not just that Russia is growing quickly, it's also that institutionally competition is incredibly imperfect. And the efforts that are made to improve it are somewhat limited. They're often captured politically. It's also that, like, you know, to take road construction, the infamous example from Boris Nemtsov and uh, Vladimir Milov, construction costs per kilometer rose like fivefold between like 2002, about 2007, 2008, you know, and, and obviously road construction in real terms actually like declined. They were building less new stuff every year than they had been, you know, when Putin first came to power. So there's, it's not, I think, as, as simple as, as calling it corruption, but there's definitely an element in which that's happening. And I think also there's a broader ambiguity or like lack of, of kind of a coherent idea for how, how do you turn this kind of current consumption boom that's taking place, which is largely buying imports, and flip it into something that can sustain domestic investments into these into lighter consumer industries, industries that don't necessarily have to export, but rather serve Russian end users or end consumers. And that's, unfortunately for Russia, the 08 crisis happens right when they ostensibly are at a point where they can, they can in theory, kind of break that problem. Um, and the, the last thing I'll hammer home about the, the inflation control problem is that people forget this now, but before the invasion of Georgia in 2008, there's a rather infamous episode in which Putin, after having you know, moved the prime minister position, he basically calls out the metallurgical firm Mitchell in public for what, what is essentially a transfer pricing scheme. It's kind of like a, a way to, to lower your, your tax obligations in Russia. But what's funny is that, you know, on the one hand, it's a political move from him to assert his, his primacy over business. Fine. But what's more interesting is that it was actually an attempt from him to get prices down because inflation was running too high. And so there's a way in which you have this kind of recurring problem of these interventions with, with business that are not just aimed at, at the kind of resolution of a political problem, such as the control of an asset, but actually contributing in some way to macroeconomic stability because they simply can't get the institutional structure right and they can't rely on it to work because of how captured so many aspects of it are. That's very interesting. And before we move into the post-2014 evolution, I did want to ask both of your opinion. It seems to me, from my study of Russian history, that there's an almost cyclical nature here to how the Russian or Soviet economies evolve. You have a very big growth in particular sectors, but a reliance maybe on things like commodity exports. And 
when you hit that boom period of commodity exports, I think we saw this under Brezhnev, there's a failure to invest. You'll see like a rise in the standard of living. There's a real failure to follow through and invest in things like infrastructure and stuff. And um, would you agree that's a cyclical issue? And why do you, th do you think that's just due to the lack of strong Russian political economic institutions and a lack of understanding of economics among political elites? I can start, I think, this off a little bit. I mean, I, I'm not someone who likes to think about these problems as like a particularly Russian problem or a particular, like something related deeply to some Russian cultural mythology, right? I think if you look at the history of the Russian Federation, really going back to the 19th century, it's always been or it's always aspired to be an exporter because it is a typical late industrializer. It is the typical late industrializer. You know, the literature on catch-up growth as in economics and economic history is for until really the 80s, a literature about the former Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. And the problem of catch-up growth, as I would put it, is how, you know, the standard how do you do catch-up growth? Well, you invest in capital stock. And because there are, this is like what Gershenkron, who is really, I think, one of the fathers of development economics uh, and history development. And again, he comes out, he's a Russian-American scholar. He comes out through the history of Russia. The way you do this is you invest in new capital stock, which is frankly new technology. And because someone else already knows this technology because you're a late industrializer, you're getting huge bouts of growth. But how do you finance new technology, right? You need the basic macroeconomic identity is savings equals investment. And what is savings? It is, if you kind of run through the equations backwards, but just showing the intuition through math, savings is just stuff you haven't consumed, either as the capitalist who's gotten return on the investment or the worker out of their wages. So you have to form your savings, and you can do that in a couple of ways. You could consume less, and that means export out, and that means get cash, which can buy foreign parts and things to make your installs to S equals, which is how the intuition for savings equals investment happens. And Russia has to do that over and over again because it is constantly a little bit of a late industrializer. And every time you have these cycles, right, it's because you are kind of falling back, you need to upgrade your capital stock or, but you also have this political problem of a population that's been since really for going through these waves of repressed consumption, right? To form that savings, S equals I savings space. That's how it's been done. And one that gets tired. So you do have these cycles, but that's just that that's a Russian problem, but it's not just a Russian problem. That is a problem of an emerging economy right? It's a problem of a middle income economy that's, I think, very universal across cases. Russia's case is just that for a variety of factors, including little odd particularities, including the fact that I think Russia was really the first middle income economy, maybe you can argue Germany was, uh, but I think much more, it's definitely true for Russia, and that it is a middle income economy that already is a military kind of great power. And locked into those kind of internal geopolitical understandings. It's just been at this for a lot longer. And now it looks demographically and in preferences and many other things 
not like a middle income power uh, uh, economy, but one that is a developed economy, but still has middle income features. So um, that's that's a little difficult, right? That what makes Russia a bit particular, but it doesn't make it special or unique is the way I would put it. Yeah, uh, obviously not unique, but that is very interesting. Uh, Nick, what, what were your thoughts on this? Yes, I mean, I, I also agree that I don't like thinking of it as like a uniquely Russian problem. I guess the one thing that I think probably sets it apart is simply that because of the important role that um, commodity exports ended up playing in the formation of these reserves, like not necessarily in previous periods, but in the last half century, and specifically oil and gas, it in you know to, to a much lesser extent coal, they're they're also hostage to not necessarily the exact same problems, but similar problems that you know more traditional quote unquote petro states you know are also are also afflicted by. So it's 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 you also have incredibly high leverage in terms of like your fiscal system, et cetera, um, off of a relatively small sector of the economy that is often you know heavily affected by by external demand in ways you can't control. And 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 to use that use the even more more recent example, you know, OPEC plus is, is a good reminder of like the intersection between the two. And I'll, I'll let Jakob explain it because I, I just want to make make sure that make that point clear. Yeah, Yakov. I mean, I Nick, I would actually even go back further about how much of a resource-dependent economy Russia, let's say the big picture geopolitical entity Russia, is than the last half century. Because if you look at pre-Russian imperial industrialization, a lot of that is wheat, right? Export. If you look at Stalinist industrialization, there's actually a really great dissertation coming out of Princeton looking at that. They intend it to be wheat export, but it actually doesn't work out because of global market conditions, but it winds up that they are a large metals and gold exporter. And that's kind of how you wind. And frankly, Stalin does a relatively good job by some standards of reinvesting that into capital, productive capital stock. So, so it's not wheat. It's not like the classic, you know, like story about like starving peasants. But like Russia is always a heavy resource exporter. It's uh, as far as it's entered the global market. Yeah, no, I I would dispute that. I think especially, I mean, if you, if you go back even further, you look at like accounts from the 16th century and the the first exposure to European markets. And so it's it's true that it's always been the kind of exporting the, like the low value added, like unprocessed commodities for hard cash. I guess the point I'm more making is that there are just specificities to the degree of volatility on oil markets and the actual total number of people employed in the sector versus the actual leverage across the rest of the economy and the effect it has on currency movements, et cetera. But I mean, it, point very, very well taken that like Russia structurally has always been exporting commodities to raise money to import the, the more technical stuff it needs. So on that note, in 2014, Russia annexed Crimea and supported proxies in the Donbass region of Ukraine, and this led to a wave of international sanctions. And then these sanctions have only expanded and tightened since the escalation of the conflict in 2022 with a full-scale invasion. And also now Russia is having to economically support what has turned into probably the largest and bloodiest conflict in Europe since the Yugoslavian disintegration. How has that impacted the Russian economy? How is it managing and is it actually enduring, as some people would have us believe, or is it not? And I guess we can start with uh, Nick and then Yakov. Uh, we'll, we'll hear what your thoughts are as well. So I'll start just kind of giving context for 2014 so we can kind of build into the rest of the conversation a bit, a bit more organically. I think you can't understand the impact of sanctions on the Russian economy in 2014 without understanding what went wrong in the Russian economy after the financial crisis. 
which is really that like, you know, Russia slowed down the same way Europe did. The, the causes are not exactly identical. Russia also adopted what, what amounted to an austerity program, though in, not nearly as intense in, in the initial years. And it kind of became more intense as a result of the Crimea shock. But basically, these high growth rates that are sustained by the redistribution of energy rents and et cetera to the public that kind of help prop up consumption, it ceases to be an effective driver of growth after 2009, 2010. And by the last part of 2015, you actually already had like an emergent recession in Russia prior to the annexation of Crimea, prior to the oil shock that year, because also obviously oil markets in 2013, 2014, 2015 were flooded by a surge of production in the U.S. from largely from Texas that you know, it was down partially to new techniques that were discovered in the, or not discovered, but augmented in the late 2000s, but also just as a result of the fact that interest rates were so low, it was incredibly easy for these drillers to effectively operate at a loss. You know, they didn't have to generate much cash flow. They could just keep drilling. And initial sanctions did not really, I would say they weren't incredibly impactful. I mean, they obviously had a, a kind of chilling effect on investment in the country. They scared off investors, but the real, the real damage done was primarily from the fact that the oil prices tanked. And then because inflation was high, the ruble weakened as a result of that. Uh, you know, there was a banking crisis, et cetera. I mean, the government's default response was to impose austerity to kind of get through that shock. And by definition, that basically means pulling back investment and consumption because less money is going to households, less money is being spent by the state on, on you know, on various you know, capital investments. And that has a kind of scarring effect. It's, it's also kind of paired with an intensification of attempts to securitize more of the economy. And what I mean by that is going back to, say, inflation, you know, using the commodities boom, 07, 08 as an example, you know, commodities prices in the 2000s broadly rose, right? So it was kind of a referred to as a super cycle. You know, food prices were part of that problem. And in 2007, there were actually protests organized with the Communist Party complaining about the increase in food prices outstripping wages. And, and that was kind of a recurring fear going into 2008 during the, the handoff of power to Medvedev. So actually, the, the counter-sanctions regime that emerges in you know against the imports of um, foodstuffs from Europe in 2014 and 2015 was also actually linked to this broader desire to have more control over the price of these goods to the extent that was possible. Um, you know, obviously, there are limits to that. And so that kind of tendency is accelerated. And so I would say that a lot of the damage that actually ends up happening as a result of the initial sanction shock it has more to do with Russia's response to it than it does the sanctions themselves, though obviously the shock later on is much more intense and has a much more noticeable effect. I think that's right. I mean, I can tell you a really funny anecdote that probably I shouldn't tell live uh, about how I moved to Russia for a year, a little over more than a year um, to do my field work when I was doing my dissertation, like sometime in uh, late 2014. And... When I came there, the ruble was still trying to be pegged and still fighting for the 30 rubles to a dollar mark. And I had a grant to go there that was already very generous for a graduate student. It was the Fulbright Hayes, so they peg it like a salary for a uh, first year kind of like junior embassy staffer. And it's pegged at the old rate, right? Old exchange rate. And when I came to Russia, I looked at the exchange rate and I thought, this is this is ridiculous. There's no way it's staying there. And I got myself an apartment I really couldn't afford, but I made sure to pay for it in rubles because I was getting paid for it in dollars. And within a few months, that exchange rate was down to almost 80. I think at the tops, it was touching the 90s. And I was, I was very well off. I actually kept some of the money over. I, photocopied like a madman and all that stuff, right? Because my expenses suddenly just collapsed. And I think that's very telling of how a lot of this worked out is that what Russia did 
the Russian authorities did well in reaction to the sanctions is just kind of let the exchange rate risk eat it, right? And what that did was it, in a less politically salient way, lowered the quality of life very slowly for a lot of people because imports became more expensive. But when you do that, it it's gradual and it gives you room to move and adjust. But on the other end, it makes it very hard to upgrade your equipment. It makes import substitution ironically harder because you need to have some things coming in to substitute them. And it leads you down the path of choosing stagnation a bit. But what's nice about stagnation, excuse me, is if you do it gradually, there's this concept in political science I really like called the J-curve, which is if quality of life is rapidly improving and then falls a little bit, but quite rapidly, it leads to more political problems than if, you know, things are pretty steady and change very slowly. I think that's kind of what 2014 to 2023 was about, right? And trying to find stability through stagnation. Yeah, I remember being there in 2012, which was when I did my field work, and it was it, it was interesting because this was just before that period. So there, there, I see exactly what you were talking about. Uh, Nick, you have some thoughts? Yeah, I think building on that, it, it's also interesting because obviously, you know, devaluation, you know, it theoretically makes you know domestic industries more competitive against imports, right? So like, I mean, part of the reason why the the choice to devalue kind of worked for them uh, politically is that they didn't care about the middle class anymore. And they're, they're the biggest consumers of imported goods. The most visible luxury items, et cetera, they're the first ones hit. And then you kind of see it, people who've been striving to reach that level of living affected by it, but not terribly. And, and it kind of filters out. But what I find interesting is that like between 20, I think 2015 and 2019, based off the Rostat data, when you look at the kind of employment figures for um, which sectors are adding, losing jobs, the, the, the most steady gains were largely for retail employment. Which is obviously also funny because obviously those those are generally speaking not very well paid jobs, right? So, it's you had this kind of weird combination of a, a choice to stagnate attempts to you know pull off import substitution, which don't really work for the strategic sectors, but ironically are actually more successful when it comes to like retail experiences, like farm to table and you know like nice restaurants opening up, etc. And that, I think that that's kind of like a weird dynamic that has probably been underexplored. But no, like I think that the, the other thing that got it too, um, which comes in politically in terms of oil is obviously that by the end of 2016, Russia essentially has to coordinate some degree of um, restraint about its oil production with Saudi Arabia to be able to provide the stability of export earnings and fiscal revenues while it figures out how to pivot away from its over-dependence on oil and gas revenues for the for the federal budget. And, and, and I would say also that like much of, of the time between 2015 and, and 2022, they were, they were fairly successful at doing so. I mean, they didn't eliminate the massive portion of the budget that they account for, but they did reduce it from, you know, let's say, let's call it 45 to 50% to like roughly 30%, maybe a little bit less if it's an off year for, for energy prices. So, you know, and that, and that, that, that came through a couple things. I mean, they, there was obviously a, a bad tax hike. A lot of that was actually just in better enforcement and, and frankly, a reform of the, of the tax services and being better able to track what businesses owed them and collecting it. But it has a perverse effect in, in the context of sanctions in 2022, because obviously energy prices skyrocket. So, you know, that provides them like a, a, a financial buffer. But because the systems become more dependent on taxes collected off of incomes and consumption, corporate incomes as well, 
the nature of the sanction shock later on is so is much more extreme and kind of actually has a, a bigger structural effect on that in, in a way that can be negative longer term. So and like and, and make it harder for them to sustain what they have. So that part of the reason why the uh, shock, the initial sanction shock, it was weathered as well as it was last year had more to do with the extreme degree of, of uh, export earnings in the first half of the year, which is kind of which then tail off once the price cap comes in from the G7. Obviously, it's been it's proven to be porous since. But the bigger lesson is that now. If as long as the oil market is oversupplied, right? If there's not like a, an absence of supply in the market, anyone buying Russian crude who is not an idiot can demand a large discount. So the the, the times that those discounts disappear now tend to co- correspond to when the market's tight, and that's something that Russia can't really control because increasingly the demand side of the equation, you know, people buying EVs and so on. What what China's doing matter more, and so like the the, the kind of stagnation that they opted for was manageable as long as they had the ability to kind of adapt to like a lower a lower oil price environment while um while getting enough revenue else to stabilize the budget that's much more difficult to do now now they have to keep spending you know on on the war and i think that that's that's one of the kind of more interesting things that's happening at the moment sorry very quick thing nick um i think you were hinting at this but i think we need to make this clear actually like the budget sometimes likes the ruble to be going a bit to be undervalued and be higher because it means budget outlays are relatively low right yeah no no of course it's it's not just the outlays it's also the, the actual the value of oil and gas revenues are higher in ruble yeah. terms right yeah so yeah exactly so yeah that's that's better said than i was trying to get at that's like really important to understand which is an interesting dynamic because now they're kind of defending it for political reasons but you know from the point of view of the budget maybe you do want ruble to go to like 200 <laughs> So in the last 10 minutes, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the trajectory of the Russian economy and how well it will continue to endure sanctions and whether or not we will see it continue to shoulder on or whether we are headed for some sort of significant contraction. Yeah, so I think on the one hand, obviously, the initial bounce back's been better than many expected, I think, in part, be- and I would argue because, you know, the economy has been so starved of, of a demand for so long that, like, any increase in state spending spurs this kind of surge. Not necessarily, I wouldn't call it business confidence. I think I wouldn't call these surveys confidence surveys, but kind of like the, the businesses suddenly have new demand they can meet. I think where it falls apart for them, though, is it's pretty apparent from the manufacturing data that we have available, um, you know, and from consumer data that, more and more kind of productive capacity is simply being sucked, you know, sucked into the defense sector or or for the purpose of the war, right? They can't really replace consumer goods that are formerly imported because they don't have enough people to manufacture them domestically, let alone, you know, necessarily like expand the capacity to do so in the current conditions. And so structurally, what that what that means is the economy is kind of slowly robbing itself of any ability to grow aside from what you can see on paper as a result of simply manufacturing more shells, more you know, more physical kits, but all, all of that also still relies on imports at various points. And where I think it gets really, really difficult to, to Yaka's point about a weaker ruble is obviously because so much is still imported for consumers, whether it be, you know, specific intermediate inputs for, um, you know, like washing machines or whether it's the things that are used for like, you know, bakeries, et cetera, whether, whether it's actual food directly, obviously a weaker ruble sends inflation up again. And, you know, the problem is the only real tool they have at this point to fight that inflation is to raise interest rates. And that, and that screws consumers. It makes it much harder for businesses to invest, and et cetera. It also makes it more expensive for the state to borrow. But at the same time, they're, they're now trying to, to mitigate that when it comes to the kind of strategic industries by offering them subsidized credits that then worsen inflation. So it's got, they're, they're kind of trapped in, I wouldn't call it an inflationary spiral, but in like a, a terrible situation where there's literally no way to resolve these kind of inflationary impasses without making households materially much, much worse off in the next five to seven years. Obviously, it's not going to be like off a cliff because wages are still nominally rising, but 
it's going to be much more dramatically felt, I think, in the next 12 to 18 months and, and further out than it was in the first year. Yeah, I mean, to Nick's point, we're in a really entering a war economy right now in Russia. Um, whether the Russian state wants to do it, which I actually don't think it does, I think there's no consensus about what a war economy is supposed to be like but we're getting there you know like we are seeing really high interest rates that are constantly going up and at the same time we're seeing quite a bit of state subsidy to you know these strategic sectors and you know in a standard economics textbook you know that is a story about crowd out i don't love the term crowd out because sometimes that's actually what you want to do, let's say, if maybe, I don't know, if you want to transition to a cleaner energy sector, you might actually have the situation in which you want to subsidize that industry in the face of higher rates to adjust economy. There's, well, that's, that's a different topic. But in the case, you know, for the long run to get efficiency, but in the case of, you know, war economy is you're producing stuff that's going to be used up, that's going to be literally blown up, right? There's no huge direct value added from any of this kind of new subsidized investment that'll get you efficiency gains, that'll get you price savings or whatever from, you know, like better productivity. You might in the long run, you know, through the process of innovation that comes with it, but not directly, right? Not, not directly. So you are entering a war economy and a war economy is always one in which you have to lean on the consumer and ration on the consumer. And the question, frankly, is, you know, what does the Russian consumer do? And we don't really know. I think a lot of people, to a certain extent, myself included, were a little optimistic about you know, the sanctions regime because we thought it would bite a little faster, but it clearly left a lot of holes open for energy earnings. And they didn't adapt to, I think, the hardest edge of the sanctions regime as quickly as the Russians did, which is actually just starving the military uh, production side. I think that worked really well, actually, for the first year or so of the regime, and then the Russians adapted, and the regime didn't. And then I think the regime overemphasized certain trendy things like chips for other things that may be more important, like machine tools, etc. But I think it's going to start biting, and it, it rarely is. The question is, what are the effects of the bite? I don't know. Yeah, and I think I guess the last point to add to that is that, you know, one of the starkest problems they simply have is a lack of manpower, right? The lack of available labor to do various things and to, you know, subsidy imports, et cetera. And so I think it's really interesting that we're entering a period where, in theory at least, and we're seeing it, you see it actually in some kind of in, in, informal labor surveys when people basically saying that increasingly like monetary um, compensation is not really the determining factor for where they choose to work. The point being that, you know, the regime is operated for really a quarter century in a market where even when things were booming, labor didn't really have that much bargaining power, uh, or when it, whenever it did, it was very, it could be very, very kind of specific to like one industry, one plant even, it could be isolated and dealt with fairly quickly. But when you have an entire economy that's overheating because there simply aren't enough people to do the things that they need for the war, it, it ultimately, you know, it affects people's relationship with their employers. I don't have a prediction. I don't think anybody knows what, what to expect in the next 12 to 18 months. I just think that that's a, a dynamic that is going to be very interesting, particularly from the perspective, um, I imagine, it, if you're like Ukrainian, you know, like intelligence services, sabotage is going to be an interesting thing in an environment where like labor actually has more bargaining power to, to demand things in return you know, from their, their employers. I mean, speaking of sabotage, it's very funny. I was going to make another point that, there, you know, there are all these people saying, oh, look, there's a fire here. There's a fire there. And I'm like, well, there are always fires in Russia. Definitely killed more of my lungs in Russia for various reasons, including industrial fires near where I live than anywhere else. But 
it's also just the lack of manpower, right? Like if you're there, it's going to increase the chances of an accident. But the point I, I was thinking about when Nick was talking about that is, you know, so much of the Russian labor market, especially at the low end, you know, that's migrant labor. Russia is an extremely migrant labor dependent economy. If, if you look at where the politics are now, you know, it's migrant labor like, for various reasons, including the need for military manpower, migrant labor is getting pressed quite a bit. And the question is, what happens when you are starting to lose migrant labor or if that migrant labor might go somewhere else? Uh, I'm definitely not a specialist in that, but then, you know, that migrant labor from Central Asia, that's gonna be a huge problem. Russia really needs the migrant labor. It is a very immigration, migration-dependent economy. Well, that has all been fascinating. Thank you very much both for joining us. This has been Russia in Context with Jeff Hahn. Remember to follow Contours and all of our other series, sub-series for more information on the world around you, including Eurasia Connections, hosted by Dr. Kamran Bokhari. Thank you very much and have a good rest of your day.